Scott McNamara with What's New in Adaptive Physical Education. Today I have an exciting new listen. This is called the APE Collaborative, uh, similar to the PEAT Collaborative that is being hosted by NICPED, uh, the National Consortium for Physical Education for Individuals with Disabilities. And they put this on with two great speakers that talk about different areas of adaptive physical education and current issues. One of those being Garth Timeson, who's going to talk about Dear Colleague Letters and the Law in Adaptive Physical Education, as well as Dr. Allie Bryan, who's going to discuss research methodology and things for early scholars. So with that, I'm going to let my good friend Melissa Bittner take it away and explain the APE Collaborative. All right, welcome today. Um, First, I want to give credit where credit's due, inspiration from this APE collaborative. Initially came from the PEAK collaborative that uh, throughout COVID had been meeting monthly. And then the collaborative was recorded and shared on the plane with um, research in um, physical education and health. And right at that time, they were giving the one year you know, summary of how it's been going. And at that same time, Garth came out with the um, the OSEP, uh, the Dear Colleague letter with regards to uh, related service personnel that he's going to speak of today. And, you know, I, I, my wheels got spinning and I'm like, wow, we need an APE collaborative. I really think that we have enough um, hot topics in the field, pertinent information that we could be sharing at, at a, a monthly meeting as well. So that was a, a big inspiration to, to get this going. Today, we're gonna do our best to keep to about an hour. <laughs> we'll have 15 minutes of um, Garth Timeson. So the idea is monthly. There will be no specific um, date and time. That was one of the feedback from the Peak Collaborative is they wanted it to be flexible and not always at the same time because, hey, if you can't join this one, because of classes, maybe the next one would work out for your schedule. So we will announce um, our October one at the, the end of this meeting today when our next time will be. And of course, these are broadcast on Facebook Live. We're live right now. And this will be in a future episode of What's New in Adapted PE. So thanks to Scott McNamara for putting that out there for us. So the schedule will always be 15 minutes of someone giving a pedagogy talk. And today it will be Dr. Garth Tynason. Then we'll do 15 minutes of uh, a research presentation. Today, it will be Dr. Allie Bryan. After that, we will do 10 minutes Q&A where you can ask questions to either speaker. Then after that, we'll do 10 minutes in a breakout room to discuss what are some hot topics in the field of APE that we, you know, what's going on right now so we can inform each other. And that will be moderated by our um, Nick Pede membership subcommittee members. And after that, the, we will come back together finally for a 10 minute whole group discussion where the membership, the subcommittee members will report back what each of the groups talked about. So kind of to fill us all in. So that is the, the plan for today. Again, big thank you to the subcommittee members, uh, Dr. Amanda Young at, from Long Beach State, Scott McNamara, University of New Hampshire, Heidi Ambrosius from Moreno Valley, uh, Unified School Districts, 
I'm um, Dr. Melissa Bittner from Long Beach States and Emily Gilbert from SUNY Cortland. So to introduce our first speaker, <clears throat> we have Professor Emeritus, Dr. Garth Tymason. He's the, been the past director of many teacher preparation um, you know, activities, centers, and programs at University of um, Wisconsin La Crosse, the former director of several OSET personnel uh, development grant programs, both at La Crosse and Northern Illinois University. He served as Nick Peed president, vice president, co-chair of legislative committee. He uh, did his um, bachelor's at SUNY Cortland and math, uh, master's at SUNY Brockport and PhD at Texas Women's University. And currently you can find him constantly on the golf course uh, during his retirement. I've had several phone conversations with him and he has been on the golf course. So at this time, um, I'm very excited to share. I will spotlight you. Go ahead and, oh, there's Garth. I will spotlight Dr. Garth Timerson and he is going to talk about the Dear Colleague letter. All right, great. the floor is yours. Uh, great, thank you, Melissa and Michelle. It's an honor to present with Ali and uh, to be part of this inaugural Adapted Physical Education Collaborative Session. Uh, this collaborative initiative is a great idea. Uh, again, I've listened to many of the Pete Collaborative podcasts. Well, I have a lot to cover and a very little time, so here we go. The title of the presentation mentions a single policy or dear colleague letter, but I will also cover three others and the who, what, when, how, and why about letters from the Office of Special Education Programs in the U.S. Department of Education. Please note that the letters I personally obtained are not dear colleague letters. I'll explain the difference very shortly regarding what the differences are. So who? Anyone can request letters from OSEP. Teachers, parents, school districts, lawyers, organizations, state departments of education, etc. They are even requested and issued to anonymous as persons are probably fearful of retaliation by agencies or individuals if their identity is revealed. And obviously, um, even adapted physical education retired professors can request them. All the letters in the OSEP policy documents can be found on the OSEP IDEA website. It's a terrific resource. Use the law and policy drop-down menu. You can search this useful website in all ways. Uh, I think they post letters and other policy documents three to four times per year. There's probably about a, uh, 75 to 100 of these ish, uh, letters issued each year on all sorts of IDEA topics. And actually they're really kind of interesting um, to read. So what are these letters? OSEP issues two types of policy documents. Policy letters are the first type. These are issued in response to specific questions, such as those related to physical education and IDEA that I ask via scenarios in school districts. The second type are called policy statement documents. These are broader written guidance. Examples would be dear colleague letters and FAQs that OSEP releases. Um, many of them are also issued each year. For example, a major dear colleague letter was issued a few months ago 
about COVID and return to school. I'm sure many of you recall the Dear Colleague letter that the Office of Civil Rights in the US Department of Education issued several years ago about athletics and extracurriculars for students with disabilities. And I actually personally think it would be a great idea if Nick Peed could get OSEP to release an actual Dear Colleague letter or a frequently asked question um, type of document. Next item is when. You can request these letters of clarification at any time. There's no deadlines and it's ongoing. Why are these important? These letters are very important for persons who need answers to the many situations and scenarios that evolve every day in IDEA special ed programs. Letters provide important interpretations and clarifications to minor and major issues alike. I like to share, I share these with parents, teachers, advocates, organizations, and of course, Nick Peed. I do this so persons have this ammunition for advocacy and services. Hopefully they are used in professional preparation programs and given to parents, teachers, administrators, and advocates in school districts and states. That's why I get them so that they can be used for those purposes. <clears throat> it's important to note that each letter contains a few sentences that state that the information is not legal advice or creating new rules and regulations for IDEA. However, it's OSEP's legal department interpretation of existing laws and regulations. I always say, would you as a school administrator read these letters and think you could do something that is not in line with the interpretation of OSEP lawyers who write the rules and regulations for IDEA? A lawyer or due process hearing officer would feast on that action. Besides the IDEA itself and court decisions, I'm not aware of many more powerful advocacy tools for parents, teachers, and others. And um, again, it's, it's just very important to have these for parents and teachers and districts. How? This is very simple. You describe the specifics of your situation for which you seek OSEP or interpretation. I very carefully collaborate with a parent who has a problem or an issue in physical education with their child. My request letters are usually two to three pages and have a lot of detail about the student and the specific situations. I cite IDEA rules and regulations that I feel justify the services or the process that parents are seeking for their child. I finish the letter of request with a series of specific questions that I ask OSEP to address in their letter of policy clarification that they're sending back to me. If you pursue this activity, I strongly encourage you to have a few persons edit and assist with your letters. The letter is emailed and you email it to Lisa Pagano at OSEPT and all of her information and contact information is in the most recent letter that I've received and they're posted on the NICPED um, website. So you don't need to worry about writing any of that down. And I actually ask that they reply to acknowledge the receipt of my letter. 
Letters are formally addressed to Dr. David Cantrell. He's the acting director of OSEP, but it's actually sent via email to Lisa Pagano. Now, understand that these names could change tomorrow, so it's important that you keep up with the OSEP website. Response can take anywhere from six to 18 months. The preschool and transition age letters took about six to seven months for me to get a response. COVID really has impacted the last few years of what has happened. It actually took 18 months for me to get um, that letter back of related to um, related services. And again, I was in contact with Lisa Pagano every two months and I fully understood what OSEP was dealing with with the entire COVID situation. Now, OSEP will usually call you with a summarized um, summary of their findings and interpretations. Ask them to put it in writing for you. This may take an additional two to three months before you get the actual letter of clarification, but you want that hard copy. And actually nowadays you're getting a PDF sent to you via email. With the most recent letter regarding substituting related services, Lisa and her supervisor at OSEP called me to discuss several questions and issued, issues. This was very helpful since they really didn't fully understand the difference between physical education and PT, the preparation and existence of adapted PE specialists, and several other key aspects related to the clarification request that I put in. As many of you have heard me say over and over again, never be surprised, never assume anything. Like anything else, having a relationship with these persons can be very helpful. I'm actually afraid to think what would have come out of this most recent request without that hour conference that I had with those OSEP people back in March of 2021. Now what I'm gonna do is give a quick review of the four actual letters of interpretation that exist out there. The first one is, and again, these are all on the NICPED website. The first one is a letter to Irby. Irby is a lawyer in, um, in, in Alabama. He has nothing to do with adapted physical education. And I actually think that this letter was a great accident for adapted physical education. Apparently a school district wanted to replace physical education with extra reading instruction. And so Irby was the lawyer for the school district who wrote this letter of request. Thank goodness OSEP said no. And the letter, again, the letter was not affiliated with me or Nick Pete in any way, but thank goodness OSEP responded in the way that we hoped they would. The three letters that I've been involved in were purposely requested as a result of repeated concerns of common issues faced all around the country. The first two were for the age levels that are most often not served in adapted physical education, but should be by law. That age is three to five, and that transition age range anywhere from 16 or 18 to 21. Now, these are not issues that are new to anyone listening today, but in many parts of the country, they are new issues for people that don't understand what the law says. 
So I got parents and colleagues to work with me to submit requests for letters of clarification. When these two letters were obtained, I was serving as co-chair of the Nick Peed Legislative Committee with Bob Arnhold at Slippery Rock University. So the first letter, I'll just refer to it as the preschool letter. This letter I received back in uh, July um, of 2013. I worked with a parent locally here who was refused adapted PE services for her three and a half year old daughter. Uh, and, and the daughter had Down syndrome. The district said her non-disabled peers didn't get physical education, so we don't have to provide services. And what they were doing was they were looking at IDEA 2004, where that language was changed that said, if the non-disabled peers don't receive physical education, then the kids with disabilities don't need it. But what they didn't um, look at was the discussion section within IDEA that said, if it was on the IEP, the student did have to receive it, even if their non-disabled peers weren't receiving it. So the letter was about three pages. It had information about a Peabody developmental motor scales that resulted in three standard deviations below the mean. And luckily, OSEP wrote back and said, yes, that age group should be receiving physical education. And again, I refer to that as the preschool letter of clarification. Now, the next one I refer to as the transition age letter. And again, this was in late October of 2013. And a little bit of a side note here, I felt that OSEP would kind of feel I was bombarding them with letters. So I actually had my good friend, Luke Kelly at the University of Virginia assist me with this. He was able to get a parent in his local area where that parent was having trouble getting physical education for an 18 year old who was in a community-based special education transition program. And again, we know what, what um, IDEA says, but there's no documentation. So luckily, OSEP wrote back to me and said, yes, those students do need to receive physical education. So again, and I, I would say in these issues in the preschool and the, um, and the transition one, you know, we knew what the law said, but entire states and districts were not serving kids as required by IDEA. So I thought the best way to provide advocacy was to get these letters for parents and teachers. Now, unfortunately, I still assume that most states are not meeting IDEA PE requirements for those two age groups. And again, I'm sure many of you in your states can kind of bob your head and say, yeah, I know that my preschoolers aren't getting it in a certain state. It's important to have these letters, if not, District administrators will just say that, you know, oh, UAPE teachers are just overzealous about your services. But if you have those letters, those are very, very important to have parents use at IEP meetings. Now, the fourth letter, the most recent one that I just received um, in, I think it was April or May, what I tried to do was address the numerous situations that we've heard about all over the country for many years in which school districts substitute related services for physical education for various reasons, or they refer to adapted PE as a related service. 
And again, now it still amazes me the confusion that arises in so many districts and states. And again, the content of the OSEP letter shouldn't surprise anybody in adaptive PE, but there are many school administrators, parents, and advocates who really need this information. Never be surprised, never assume anything. I find that states that do not have a State Department of Education authored adapted PE Q&A or guidance document is where most of these blatant and staggering misinterpretations occur. As an FYI, I currently have another adapted PE related request pending with OSEP for a letter of clarification. Over the past several years, myself and others have heard many adapted PE teachers say that their special education supervisors or administrators have told them that they need to stop programs such as adapted aquatics and biking or outings such as hiking, bowling, or other community-based adapted physical education. The reason given by administrators is often that general education students don't have access to these programs or curriculum units, so they're not legal. Or adapted physical education teachers are told that the programs take place in segregated settings and don't meet the district's full inclusion policy. Adapted PE teachers are sometimes told to remove content and related goals from IEPs in these situations. Many process issues can arise from these situations, such as change of placement, removal of goals and services without parental approval, and having a, and having a continuum of placements available to meet individual student needs in special education. Now, I, I suspect that this letter is going to take about six to eight months to obtain from OSEP. So keep your fingers crossed with this one. And I must admit, this request letter was tricky to compose since specific content was unique, unlike the general concepts of the first three letters of clarification. So we're going to see what happens. A final note is that the LRP company publication called Special Education Law Monthly will often summarize these OSEP or OCR letters of clarification in their products. This professional dissemination adds to the impact and the credibility of these advocacy materials. Many special education K-12 administrators review these publications to keep abreast with legal decisions and issues, and it's nice to have some physical education content in there for their understanding. Thank you for attending today, and I'll deal with questions at the end, as Melissa said. All right, thank you so much, Garth. That was great um, with the clarification letters. Very, very important that our field continues uh, this, this very important aspect. Much, much appreciated for all that you've done. Thank you. Next. Oh, Garth, you didn't share your cool pictures. Oh, <laughs> uh, hey, there, there's a recent trip. There's a recent trip to Glacier on the right. Uh, it's a beautiful hike. If anybody is interested in going to Glacier, give me a buzz and I'll give you some tips. I got a daughter that lives right out there and it's wonderful. And that was my almost hole in one last week. <laughs> and one more. Okay. We got. Oh yeah, this was the Highline Trail in Glacier National Park. 
I'm glad it was kind of cloudy and foggy that day. I think I would have uh, fainted if I ever looked down at the bottom there. Cool. Yeah, that looks a little sketchy. <laughs> okay, we got one more. I think we're going to, oh, and there's my first grandchild born about two months ago out in Arizona. Oh, <laughs> congrats. Thank you. Thanks again, Garth. Next up, we have Dr. Allie Bryan. She's the founder director of the Physical and Developmental Disabilities Research Lab at University of South Carolina. And she runs the new Masters of Science in APE program there. She's the chair of the Research Council for Shape America, Executive Committee member for NICPEED, treasurer for the International Motor Development Research Consortium and is the associate editor for Research Quarterly for Exercise and Sports and Physical Education and Sports Pedagogy, and serves on the editorial board for both journals. And we'll switch. All right, Allie, you should have priv privileges to share your screen. Okay, hopefully I make this work. Okay, you see the PowerPoint? Yeah, looks great. Okay, maybe. All right, can you hear me still? Yes, you're good to go. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you, Melissa, Amanda, et al., for doing all the work to put this together uh, and for inviting me to speak with you all today. I, I'm actually thrilled to be here with Garth as well. And uh, I tell you, those are some tough shoes to follow. Uh, I, I've got a lot to chat about. So I'm gonna to try to hurry scurry. Melissa, just rein me in if you need me to stop, no worries. Um, you know, Melissa invited me to do this and said, hey, let's do some research tips. And I'm like, hmm, what should we chat about here? So I thought, you know, as Melissa said, I, I am an associate editor for a couple of journals. And I also have the wonderful privilege of advising many doctoral students. Um, many are graduated, some are still with me. And so I thought to myself, okay, what are the things that I see that get into people's way, right? When, when trying to publish and, you know, it's just so critically important for adapted physical educators and adapted physical activity researchers to get our data out there because it's that evidence base that really supports policy change and practical translational shifts. So, and oftentimes, you know, due to the various constraints within our field, we can, we can have some challenges. So I thought I would share some tips that if I think about when I started trying to publish and was in the beginning rejected more often than successful, I wish I would have known these things so that perhaps now when things are a little easier, it would have been a little better back then. So, all right, hurry scurry, here we go. All right, so the first thing that I noticed that either students or, or, or young scholars, or even sometimes me, this was the thing I was most guilty of early on, was writing too quickly, All right? We're always in such a darn hurry to get the data out and get things published. And, you know, when you do that, you don't allow yourself time to see your paper, okay? And I can't find chat, where is it? There it is. All right, so here we've got this picture here that you, know, you may or may not have seen before. I would just like you all to pop in the chat what it is that you see. Got here. And I can't take too much time, so hurry, hurry, hurry. Okay, we got a rabbit, we got a bird, we got a duck rabbit. Rabbit, bird, first rabbit, then duck, duck, bird, rabbit. Okay, right, so we, we get the gist, right? That perception isn't always reality and that sometimes 
when I write these papers and I still do this, I'm like, oh, this is so great. I'm so excited. I can't wait for everyone to read this and you're going to get it, right? And then somebody reads it for me and they go, oh, well, what are you trying to do here? Right? Oh, no, I'm writing on an intervention. It's so easy. Watch, here's what we did. And they're like, yeah, no, we didn't get that. But it's a duck. No, it's a rabbit. Okay. So when you write too fast and you just boom, go, you don't give yourself the chance to see that it might be a rabbit and a duck, but realistically, we need it to be a duck. So with time, if you give yourself the time to step back away. So when I was a doctoral student at the Ohio State University, go Bucks. My advisor, Jackie Goodway would always be like, you know, I want you to write this and then put it down and read it again in a week. And then when I'd read it again in a week, I'm like, what in the world did I just write? Holy moly. So if you give yourself the time to get it done, you can seek out critical friends, right? Critical friends are so important because they're going to read it and you need to tell them to be brutally honest, right? Tell me what's wrong. How can I make this better? And don't take it as an indictment on you. That's the other mistake that folks do. They go, oh, I want you to think this is the greatest thing. It's, it's like, you know, it's going to change the world. And they're like, mm. and you can't take that as an ego hit, right? Seek out folks that are willing to tell you, hey, this was a bad life choice. Let's try this again. Because ultimately, when you publish these papers, they're there forever, right? So take on critical friends, be open and willing to hear what they have to say. And then, of course, do it in return. All right, so with time, you can also avoid the sloppy Joe kisses of death. That's a cod, kiss of death. And the things I see as an associate editor that make me want to desk, desk reject papers, all right, APA errors, you can control that. Missing incorrect references drives me bananas. All right, numbers that don't add up. So if you've got you know, a sample size in your abstract and then in your methods, and then you have a table and they don't all align, that looks sloppy Joe. Right? Take the time, print it out, look at it, compare it, do the math. I've got an N of 20 of which 10 are with a disability and five are without. Well, 10 plus five is 15. Yeah. Right? We don't like that stuff. Grammar and syntax. You didn't read it. Why are you making me edit it for you? I have 25 manuscripts in my hopper right now. Don't make me edit your paper. Okay. And then not adhering to journal guidelines. Like if you're working too quickly, you're going to miss this stuff. Right? So take the time. Okay, so also with time, so those are kind of like ugh, the original screening kisses of death, but then there's big time CODs, right? The big time things like your paper doesn't align. Does your introduction set up your actual research questions, right? You've got a research question on gender difference, but then you don't have anything about gender in your intro. That came out of that field right? Make sure the intro sets up the research questions and include hypotheses, right? The great motor development researcher, Jane Clark said, the easiest way to write a paper is to have a research question and a hypothesis, right? Set them up, report it, and then you can, in your discussion, you can talk about why or why not your hypotheses were supported or rejected, right? Makes sense, alignment. I know Emily's on here, one of my former students, and she's heard me say this a million times, shiny bunny flow. You're probably like, what in the world? And there's a bunny in the corner just distracting us away. So the shiny bunnies are these things that hippity hop around when you're trying to write that will distract you. Okay. Shiny bunnies are things like I'm trying to write and oh, what's going on in Facebook Live? Or, oh, you know, what's going on on the TV? Or, oh, I forgot to respond to this email. 
right? Or it could be that your paper is hippity hopping all over the place, right? Make sure the flow makes sense and avoid the bunnies. All right, and then, okay, theoretical hypocrisy. I don't really have time for it, I don't think. Um, trying to take on too much. My students tend to be victims of this where they try to solve the world's problems in one paper. Let's avoid that, right? Less is more, concise, clear. That's the key to publication, right? This is what we meant to do. Here's what we did. And here's what we're going to do next, rather than the entire world has all these problems and I'm going to solve them with one hand clap. It doesn't work that way. Okay, so a couple of uh, ways to avoid the kisses of death. In the, this is what I tend to do. And I don't know that everyone will, will write this way, but I make sure I know my research questions first. What's my research question? What are my hypotheses? And then I write my methods. I got to make sure that that section is, is there because then if I write my introduction, I can set it up, right? If I don't know what is what I'm trying to answer and if I don't know how I got there, how can I set it up, right? So then we craft the intro to make sure that everything is in that method section is set up. And then the discussion, the biggest fatal flaw I see is a regurgitation of results. You got a results session section. You don't need to tell me in your discussion that there were gender differences or that, you know, peers with disabilities were more physically active than peers without, whatever it is. We know that, right? Don't regurgitate it. Think a little differently. The what, the so what, the now what. The discussion is the so what and the now what, right? But then be very, very careful to not go beyond your data, right? So I can't say necessarily why things occur because I'm a quantitative methodologist. I need my qualitative friends sometimes to come around and tell me the, the depth of the story that why things occurred, right? So be very careful about going beyond your data in your discussion, but please don't just regurgitate results. All right, this one doesn't happen too terribly often, but realistically the research questions should drive the analyses and not vice versa. So what do I mean by that? If I wanna know why peers with disabilities are 10 times more likely to opt out of an activity than, than peers with, then I need to ask them, right? That might require some qualitative and you know, some, some deeper types of inquiry. Whereas if I wanna know if there's differences and if those differences predict an outcome of interest, then I would do something a little more quantitative. Right. And so if it's not in your wheelhouse to do that type of methodology, then make a friend. Right. Consult an expert. I'm always seeking good qualitative people. I'm a quantitative person. I need those call people to help me with the why. Right. So don't be afraid to consult an expert. And, you know, we go further together than we ever would alone. So um, and then I suppose the last thing in this section that this drives me bananas you gotta make sure your analyses really align with your theoretical underpinnings. So what do I mean by this? If I have a constructivist theoretical approach, I can't be doing single subject behavior design, right? Behaviorism and, con and constructivism are not the same animals. Same thing with positivism, which was more of your quantitative inferential statistical approaches, right? And sometimes I see those mismatches and I'm like, do we really understand the theoretical underpinnings of what's going on here? So make sure what it is that you're doing aligns so that you don't have hypocrisy. Okay, I know I'm kind of running slow here. Um, 
they're running, taking too long. So other ways to avoid the kisses of death. Don't feel rejected by rejection. Earlier on in my career, I got rejected more than I got accepted. I thought my dissertation manuscript was gonna be the greatest thing on earth and was gonna change the planet. And you know what, it got rejected twice. <laughs> and you're just like, really? Oh my goodness. And so it was so dejected. But then once you start reading the reviews, you know, like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, I didn't think about that. Or even I forgot to know it, right? Like, holy cow. Take the reviewers as a critical friend, revise, make it better, and submit it elsewhere. There's a ton of journals, right? Persist and endure. This is really a game. It's a marathon, right? And Melissa, you got a half marathon coming up. But that's what publication's like. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So take those reviews as an opportunity to have a free critical friend, okay? And learn from it. Um, I also cannot say enough the importance of experience, okay? And by experience, I mean read, right? Like I, I spend, I used to spend a lot more, but now I, I try to earmark at least a couple hours a week to make sure I read what's hot and what's new out there, okay? Read, 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 read what's out there, but be critical about it. Don't take something that's published as gospel necessarily, because sometimes, you know, just because it's published, it, it just may have not had a good review process or may represent an, an older mindset, right? But read, 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 and learn to think critically about what it is that you read, okay? Write, write, write. The more you write, the better you get at it. And another good way to get some experience with publication is to actually serve the field by being a reviewer, right? So as an associate editor for two different journals, I am struggling right now to get reviewers. So please feel free to say yes when I push these manuscripts out to you for review, please, please, please. But you learn so much by reading what others write because then you're critically analyzing it and then you get to read what the other reviewers wrote, right? Do, did what you review match what they said? And if not, what did, what did what'd you miss or what'd you learn, right? Attend as many conferences as possible, present, be ready to get some more critical feedback. But when you're at these conferences, pay attention to the designs and the analyses, take notes. I learned so much as a student in my first few years attending multiple conferences and learning new techniques and new ways to think about things, right? I mean, it's fun to go and socialize and all that good stuff, but really when you attend these sessions, pay attention, take good notes. Okay, so then as APEA scholars, be prepared for, and this is what I hear all the time, it's so frustrating and infuriating, is that my sample size is too small, right? I got a low incidence disability here. I got 150 kids with visual impairments and you're telling me this is too small? Really, right? <laughs> Paper I just read had an N of 15 and you're telling me mine's too small. Just be ready for that. And so the way that I deal with it is I educate. I respond politely and say, I appreciate that comment, but however, we have 60,000 kids in this country with VI and I've got 150 of them. That's pretty darn representative. You got 300% more than the previous paper you publish. So get it together, right? Don't say get it together because you can't smile, right? In a response to a reviewer. Um, be really careful though with these relatively small sample sizes about misinterpreting null hypotheses, right? Things are, we're very rarely able to say that things are not significantly different we rarely have the sample size to do that. So just basically say, these are the things that were significant and these other things are trends, right? You're gonna hear that our data are not generalizable. And we're gonna say, you know what? They are for kids like them and perhaps kids that aren't, you don't know, right? So take it as is, get ready for that. And then avoid really using the terms best practices unless there's sound, actual, factual data to support it. I see that a lot. 
and reviewers rip it to shreds, right? So be very, very careful about the use of those terms. All right, a few tips for young scholars who don't have a lot of money and for students, right? I've got some free resources here for you that will help you with this process. And what is Mendeley? Okay, so Mendeley is a reference management software. So remember I told you it was irritating when references are in a reference list, but not in text, or they're in text, they're not in a reference list, but ebadabada, okay? Mendeley will pop in references for you, right? It's free, just beware, it doesn't drive with EndNote. And I had a computer get really mad at me once. So be on the same page. Uh-oh, here we go. Oh no, back, back. Okay, Research Rabbit is a, a, a cool place to help you organize literature searches and papers by topic, right? We can't all afford things like Covenant software. So, you know, I like Research Rabbit. It's free. Sign up for Google Scholar alerts. You can put in topics like visual impairment or developmental delay or early years, preschool, and it will give you all the latest, hottest papers that come out each week. Gully. And then JASP, this one's a game changer. J-A-S-P, JASP, is free statistical software. And it uses SPSS um, SAV files and SPV files, and it uses Excel, whatever your database is. And it allows you to do such fancy analyses like confirmatory factor analyses. I can't even do that in SPSS. I have to use Amos. Or something like a McDonald's Omega, where I have to write pages of code to get it in SPSS. I can do it in JASP with a button. ANOVAs, T-tests, regressions, JASP, it's free, right? Cool. And then Grammarly, right? Grammar check, I don't wanna see things like might could, it might could do, or it ain't got no, right? I read those in papers, it drives me bananas, right? Grammarly will go, yo, no good. And that's it, I think I went over by a minute. So I'm happy to ask questions at the end, thank you. All right, thank you, Allie. Thank you, Garth. You were both excellent, much, much appreciated. And now at this time, we will open up for our Q&A. So if you just use the raise hand feature, if you have a question and you can address either Allie or Garth at this time. That's all good. I do have some questions in the chat that have been shared. Um, so here's one. And this question is, is there a letter that you believe would support help a challenge you have faced in the past? So I think this is directed to Garth. Ask that question again, Melissa. Is there a letter that you would believe would support help or support a challenge you have faced in the past? Uh, well, I, I would say, you know, the two letters that we got, the one for preschool and the one for transition secondary, um, you know, I've, I've advocated for making sure that preschoolers are receiving adapted physical education for many, many years. And so um, when that letter came to me and verified that those kids between the ages of three and five should be getting adapted physical education, even though their non-disabled peers were not receiving physical education. I mean, that was a win. I was able to share that with parents. I was able to share that with adapted PE teachers. They were able to use that with their administrators. And, you know, so that, those are all helpful. 
Great. Thanks, Garth. Mm -hmm. All right. I have a uh, question for my old advisor here. Um, so in terms of starting from scratch and trying to determine where to start when we have a question. So if we do want to take on the world, we're at the beginning, we have so many things that we want to solve. How do we figure out where to start in that problem? Where, what are ways that we can kind of break it down to, to plan it out? A good question, Emily. Um, I guess it depends on the nature of your topic. So I'll share a, a little bit about the work I do with visual impairment. So with, with, with visual impairment research, there, there wasn't a whole lot out there. And because there wasn't a whole lot out there, there were not a lot of tools to use to measure the variables of interest that I wanted. So in the beginning, when I would run studies on their self-perceptions of motor competence, you know, in relation to physical activity or motor development or something, the reviewers would just clobber me that this tool is not designed for individual visual impairments or there's no psychometric betting, yada, yada, yada. And they're not wrong. So in that instance, it was like, okay, can't use self-perception, can't use physical activity, can't use motor development. Why? Because there are no tools that were specifically vetted for individuals with visual impairments. So where did I start? We started there. We created the tools and we vetted them to show that they were both internally valid, you know, meaning that they were, how can I explain this simply? Um, you know, measuring what they're purporting to measure, right? And they were then externally valid in that they were applicable to many children with visual impairments in their day-to-day -day lives. So if you don't have the tools, you got to start there, right? And so I guess that was a big part of my early line with visual impairment. And then with the preschool work I do, it's really understanding the literature, right? So what did I do with you? What was the first assignment you did for me in 770? Do you remember? Oh, oh, the systematic uh, review of the literature. Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> right. And so if you don't know what's out there, you don't know what's missing. And so I, I highly encourage people to get out there and read, dig in the literature and figure out what the gaps are. And then you take, I always like a five-step plan, right? This is the gap. Here's where I want to be. Here's step one, two, three, four, five, and how to get there. So you really need to know the literature because another kiss of death that I didn't say was that this is the first study of its kind to look at, Emily looked at etiology and, you know, outcomes. So, you know, children with cancer that also had a visual impairment in their motor development. Could she really say this was the first study of its kind to look at that? Well, she had to know the literature because otherwise some reviewer is going to be like, I did a paper in 1975 and I studied this. So you're wrong. Right. So that's my best advice. Make sure you have the tools to measure it. And then you really need to know the literature. Thank you. Yeah. I have a question. Can you hear me? Um, okay, great. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Ali. Thank you, uh, Garth. That was fabulous, um, both for your historical sort of summary of the OSEP letter and how those, how the process for going about that. I really appreciate that. Just a point of clarification. Did you say that you had an OSEP letter pending? That would be my first question. And the second question, if NICPEED was to, were to, would it be possible for them to ask for a frequently asked questions document? So we have a document yes. coming out, but it's um, just that that's a great resource. And we get 
emails every day from teachers asking for clarification. So these letters are really useful. What next, I guess, is also part of that question. Yeah, so, so the answer to the first question is yes. I do have one that I sent in about, oh, a month ago. And um, that again is one of those ones where I hear, you know, I, I don't just hear one thing and go, oh, we, I need to write a letter. You know, I usually wait until I hear it seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 times from all over the country and, and, and it's a trend. And so there seems to be a trend that um, administrators are telling adapted physical education teachers in a lot of areas that, no, you can't have a separate adapted aquatics program. No, you can't have a separate um, adapted bike program. And they're giving various reasons. And so what I do is I fold it all into issues. And so if, if an administrator says, oh, you can't offer that program because the non-disabled aren't getting it, it's not legal. Well, I disagree with that because that would mean that everyone must be participating in the general education curriculum. And that is not what the law says, okay? And so, yes, I do have that letter pending. And, and again, I don't expect that one to come back to me for six to eight months. And, you know, yes, the consortium, um, in my estimation, could work with other organizations or maybe key people um, in the Department of Ed and OSEP and maybe work towards getting a frequently asked question document or a dear colleague letter specifically to physical education. When, when our organizations um, you know, develop frequently asked question documents like SHAPE, SHAPE has a wonderful document, um, but sometimes school administrators will say, well, that's not my state department of education that's telling me what to do. Yes, I respect shape, but I don't answer to shape. I answer to the, the, the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction or the Illinois State Board of Education. And so I think it is very valuable to have what I call those state authored documents. And if there could be an OSEP frequently asked question document or a, a dear colleague letter in physical education, that would be fantastic. Um, they're, they're not easy to get. Um, you know, there was a, a dear colleague letter that was put out. Now it's probably four or five years ago and Allie might be familiar with this. It had to do with the use of braille, teaching braille in public schools where the advocates were finding that that teaching of Braille was really decreasing. And so OSEP clarified that. And I can't imagine they didn't have a lot of people from the field that were politicking for OSEP to put out that letter, that dear colleague letter. And so I think um, it takes some politicking with OSEP to get them serious about a dear colleague letter or a frequently asked question document. But yeah, I, it would be wonderful to put out an OSEP authored 
FAQ or dear colleague letter about physical education. It would be wonderful. Thank you, Garth. Great. Thanks, Garth. A question from Davey Martinez. Hi, this is uh, Dave Martinez, and my question is for Dr. Thymason as well. First of all, thank you for your advocacy with the past and future letters of clarification. And also thank you for describing the process for submitting a question and requesting the letter mm -hmm. of clarification. My question is, how detrimental is it if the clarification letter does not come out in your favor? <laughs> Have you heard of this instance occurring? And is it possible to get a clarification a verbal before requesting that hard copy? Yeah. Are, 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 there, are there verbal clarifications yeah. archived in other words? Yeah, very good, Dave, very good. You know, I must admit, the first three that I did, okay, the preschool and the transition age and the related service one, I was 99.9% .9 sure that what was gonna come was what we wanted. And, and, and again, I carefully write the letter and I carefully document the rules and regs that I think we should be looking at and I also carefully um, craft the questions that I want them to answer. So, you know, there is a little bit of holding breath at, as to when it comes, uh, but we've been okay for these last three, because again, it shouldn't surprise us because it says ages three to 21. So how can you not say that three to five shouldn't be receiving this specially designed physical education? And like I said, the most recent one that I submitted I am a little bit nervous on that because I actually mentioned specific content, but I tried to put it in um, as an issue, uh, using the content as the issue, like placement and uh, whether there had to be a continuum of placements. And, and, and to answer your question about when they call and give you the verbal, you know, I, I guess I do kind of hold my breath a little because I'm hoping when they give me that verbal analysis, I'm, believe me, I'm shaking my head and I'm very happy and I'm, kind of, and I'm saying, okay, yeah, I want it in writing now. Um, I, I'll tell you what, I would probably say no thank you if it wasn't what I wanted to hear. Um, I, 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 I don't think they keep um, you know, uh, all of those conversations because they're phone conversations. But I, I don't know how to answer that question, Dave, as to whether they archive their phone conversations where they give the results. Um, but yeah, sometimes I hold my breath. Uh, but, I, but, you know, up front, I'm very careful as to how I'm wording things. And again, you know, just about everybody on this, you know, presentation right now or listening you, you probably could have predicted the answers, but the bottom line is if we don't have that paper, if we don't have that PDF now or whatever to show the special ed directors or whoever it might be, they're just saying, oh, Dave, you are so zealous about your adaptive PE. You'd say anything to get these programs going. But if you have that documentation, that's what's key. Sounds like everything, all our burning questions have been answered. That's great. The NICPED APE uh, Collaborative for October will feature uh, Dr. Susanna Dillon from Texas Women's University. She's going to speak on APE advocacy. And we will have Brad Wiener, 
Um, at Fairfax County Public Schools, he's going to give some APE teaching tips and advice. So the October Collaborative will be Thursday, October 21st at 9 a.m. PST, 11 a.m. Central Time or noon uh, Eastern Time.